Well, we're going to try and look miles and miles into the future and discuss specifically what does the Bible say? What does Christianity hypothesize will happen in eternity? And if we could see miles in advance, and if it was true what the Bible communicates, how might it change our attitudes today? See, there's sort of a, uh, an idea going around universities and around our culture that says that the more, and start with the Enlightenment and continued into modernism, the idea that the more we had science and logic, the more people would get away from this religious idea. People would not need this sort of hocus-pocus witchcraft, which is religion. We would sort of think our way out of that nonsense. But here we are, you know, 50, 70 years away from modernism into postmodernism, and what we're finding is that sociologists are discovering that religion is not on the decline, it's on the rise all over the world. There's a sociologist by the name of Jack uh, Goldman, and he makes this, this note. Sociologists jumped the gun when they said the growth of modernization would bring a growth of secularization and unbelief. That is not what we're seeing. People need religion. We need to know who we are, what matters, what is true, where am I going, how did I get here, how do I find meaning and purpose. There's a universal need in the human heart, transcends time and culture, that science, though a great thing, can't answer these questions. And so the, the question we need to ask is, well, how could you know anything about what happens in the future so that we could wrestle with this stuff if religion is that important? This year I saw a great movie. It was my favorite movie last year, and it was Doctor Strange. If you didn't see Doctor Strange, it's a story of a surgeon who is pretty arrogant and pretty puffed up. He's the top surgeon in his uh, particular uh, practice. And he doesn't believe in God. He believes, like modernism does, that the only things that are real are things you can touch with your five senses. All of the universe is made up of matter and energy and nothing more. He has a horrible car accident, and now he's destroyed his hands, the way he makes his money. He's tried every medical and scientific way to solve his problem, and he can't. So he begins to turn to the idea that maybe there's a soul, maybe there's a spiritual world. So he comes face to face with a woman who's going to challenge his assumptions that there's nothing made of soul, spirit, or eternity in a pretty incredible way. Let's watch. <laughs> so this idea that sometimes we think we know all there is. Even as Einstein said, how much of the known universe do you even know about, do we all know about? Is it possible that God could exist in that? Is it possible there are worlds that we don't yet perceive, things beyond our five senses? Well, Dr. Strange was a, a surgeon, but there's actually a, a real surgeon who had a similar journey. He wrote a book called Breath Without Air, and he discussed his diagnosis of cancer. And that as he faced his own mortality, he began to ask, where does science have limits, and where do we need to look for truth even beyond that? Here's what he says in the book. I love this quote. He says, science has the ability to you know, reduce phenomena or things into manageable units, without a doubt. It can make claims about matter and energy, but nothing else. Science can explain love, meaning it's chemical responses in your brain that helped your ancestors survive. But if we attest, as we all do, that love, meaning, and morals are, they don't just feel real, because your chemicals are telling you, they actually are real things, then science cannot support that. His point is that there's things beyond science that are true, beauty, honor, morality, love. So he went on a journey to discover what those things are in this book. So as you look at that today, we're looking at different C.S. Lewis books in this series. Today we're going to look at a book by C.S. Lewis called The Great Divorce. It's an imaginary fictional journey to describe some of the aspects of heaven and hell 
where a group of people are in hell and they are getting on a bus ride and they have a chance to go to heaven, see a place of ultimate joy and peace and choose if they want to get off the bus and enjoy eternity in peace and joy or will they get back on the bus and enjoy sort of a gray jury place called hell. And in this book, as he addresses when someone sees from miles and miles of what heaven is like, why would they choose to go back? There's two quotes in the book. First one comes from Paradise Lost that C.S. Lewis quotes. He says, the choice of every lost soul can be expressed in this. It's better to reign in hell than to serve in heaven. Another quote he says in the book is that there are two types of people. Those to whom God says, who say to God, God, thy will be done in my life. I want your work in my life. And those to whom God sadly says, thy will be done. Those who go to hell choose it. So we're going to explore these two quotes and show us what it tells us about heaven, what it tells us about eternity. Why do some people choose destruction? Why do other people choose life? And how can I experience life eternal now and in the future? Our first quote. How can that be true, honestly? How can it be true what C.S. Lewis says, that people would choose to reign in hell rather than serve in heaven? Well, forget eternity, forget religion for a second. Don't we all know people that we ask the same question all the time? Why do you keep doing that destructive habit? We even call it a living hell, don't we? We see people who choose to reign in their hell. It's the family member or the friend that's committing adultery. And we can see how it's destroying a marriage, destroying families, affecting a little girl's ability to trust later on in life. So we can see all of the damage that's being caused, and yet the person continues, despite any rationality, to pursue something that's destructive. You probably have friends who have addictions, and they keep drinking, and they keep gambling. And despite friends coming around them, despite people cutting off the, the enabling behaviors, you say, why do you keep choosing that? Why, oh, come over here. It's better over here, you might say. It, it, it's more heavenly over here, the kind of peace, the kind of joy you can experience. And yet they continue to choose something that's a living hell through their addiction. You ever try to talk a gossip out of being a gossip? What happens? They gossip about you to somebody else. That's what happens. And you're saying, but your gossip, it's affected your trustworthiness, it's affected your ability to have good relationships, it's affecting the community, because now everybody wonders whether or not who's gossiping about so. If you can't see it in yourself, you see it in your kids' and teenagers' life, just gossip everywhere. Why do they keep choosing destructive behaviors? It's like they want to reign in their gossip, reign in their hell, rather than serve in a different way of living. We do it in ways when... You've made work so important to you that work has become the number one thing in your life. And now you're reigning in your work. But your doctor tells you you need to reign in your work because it's affecting your life. You're literally destroying your life through ulcers or pain or, or overworking or you're destroying your marriage or your family life. And people have come to you or, or, or you've come to somebody else and said, well, why do you keep doing that? And they say, well, this is the right thing to do. We continue to choose destructive behaviors. But often people say, well, I don't believe in a God who would send people to hell for a couple of reasons. Number one, I believe in God who is all loving, and I don't think a loving God would judge anybody. Right? You've heard that, you've probably thought that, you've wondered that. But if you listen carefully, just a, a, a few sentences later, you'll hear the same person say something like, I don't believe God should ever judge people because he's loving. And then a few sentences later, they'll say, why doesn't God judge the evil in the world quicker? 
I can't believe in God because of the problem evil, evil, because of the problem of evil. So they're really saying God needs to judge sooner. But just a few minutes ago, they said God shouldn't judge at all. Hell is the answer to that dilemma. God says, I don't want anybody to be out of my presence. I don't want anybody to miss out. I want everyone to serve and reign with me in heaven. But eventually I'm going to destroy the things you want destroyed, the things you're begging me to destroy. Self-centeredness and pain and betrayal and lying and, and all the things that are on your list. Hell is the answer to, I'm going to solve that problem, but I'm waiting because I don't want anyone thrown in the trash who's still holding on to their trash. There's a philosopher by the name of Miroslav. He said, this idea that God doesn't judge is a very American idea. Most religions, most of history did not struggle with this. He says, if you grow up with violence, like most of the the world lives in continual violence, you don't struggle with God judging. You struggle with God loving the people that have abused or raped your your family. Here's how he says it. My thesis is that the practice of nonviolence, nonviolence, requires a belief in divine vengeance. My thesis will be unpopular with many in the West. But imagine speaking to people, as I have, whose cities and villages have been first plundered, then burned, then leveled to the ground, whose daughters and sisters have been raped, whose fathers and brothers have had their throats slit. Your point to them, we should not retaliate. Why not? I say, the only means of prohibiting violence by us is to insist that real violence is only legitimate when it comes from God. He continues, Violence thrives today, secretly nourished by the belief that God refuses to take the sword. It takes the quiet of a suburb for the birth of the thesis that human nonviolence is a result of a God who refuses to judge. In a scorched land, soaked in the blood of the innocent, the idea will invariably die, like other pleasant captivities of the liberal mind. If God were not angry at injustice and deception and did not make a, a final end of violence, he would not be worthy of worship. Which is his very long-winded way of saying, if you're seeing violence all the time around you, you're not struggling with God judging. You're wishing he would judge more. The idea of heaven and hell is an answer to God wants everyone in heaven, but he eventually is going to throw everything that's bad into this place or this incinerator. And he wants to separate you and I from our trash. So in the book, C.S. Lewis, he tells the story of what hell is like and and why people would choose to reign in hell rather than experience heaven. So when they get to hell, Napoleon is there. And they find Napoleon uh, can't get along with anyone, so he's moved a million miles away from everybody else in hell. And as he's done that, they get out a a telescope in order to see him because he lives so far away in this gray land. And they see that all day long he does the same thing. He walks up and down the stairs of his large home all day long, mumbling to himself. One day they sent some people to go and listen in to hear what he was saying, and Napoleon all day long says this, It's the Russians' fault. It's the Brits' fault. It's Josephine's fault. And his eternity is that he's been given over to his need to blame and not take responsibility for his actions. And in heaven is a place of responsibility, a place of joy, and he cannot enter heaven because he cannot imagine not reigning in his ability to blame other people for his interactions. C.S. Lewis tells the story of another woman. This woman is so addicted to her ability to grumble, so addicted to being critical, that she wants to reign in her grumbling because she can't imagine living in a place where she's not allowed to grumble. Her character is something like this. 
Oh, I've had a dreadful time, dear. If I told Mrs. Stone once, I've told her a thousand times, we are not going to meet on Sink Street. That is where Marjorie Banks lives. And, and, and let me tell you how I handled this. And I'm sure you'll tell me I handled it right. Because Marjorie Stone, well, we once lived together. And when we did, I was in charge of the cooking and she was in charge of the, of the housing. And what well, she has changed. She criticizes people all the time and doesn't even know it. She gossips about people behind their back and doesn't even know it. And one time, with all this change, I said to her, I said, I think I'm entitled to a little bit of consideration for everything I've been through in my life. Oh, yes, I had a husband once. He had friends, and I told him, oh, you will not have any friends of your own. You, you, your friends will be my friends. And, and he just, he needed, I need someone to do things to, is what I need. And, and now people don't come to visit me. They didn't when I was in the nursing home. And, and it just seemed like people, more and more and more, didn't want to be near me. I don't understand why. She was so given over to reigning in her grumbling that she became a giant eternal grumble, unable to choose a place of joy. Well, the Bible speaks to this. In the book of Romans, chapter 1, it says that you give yourself over to these death habits, these non-heavenly habits. God will eventually give you over to your debased mind. If you want to be envious long enough, look at the long list. If you want to be envious, eventually you'll become a big blob of envy. You're going to be proud and arrogant or a braggart. At some point, it'll be a habit in your life, but eventually, it becomes who you are. You're nothing more than a braggart or a gossip, an inventor of evil, disobedient, violent, evil-minded, a whisperer, a backbiter. And, so, and, and all of us would say, those are bad things. I mean, if I got to do something with those things, and God is going to do something with those things. The problem is, many of us are becoming those things, and God's given us over to that to show us this is not going to experience the kind of joy you want. Choose joy. Let go of that. Let me break that in your life. Let me help you find freedom in that. But what's really unique about the Bible is the Bible says one of the biggest challenges we have is that we need to be rescued not just from our bad deeds, but from our good deeds. Why would you need to be rescued from your good deeds? Because in heaven, God is your justifier. God is your identity. God is your source and your savior. Many of us, we've got our resume of all the good things we've done, and that's our real savior. That's how we justify ourselves. Like another man in the book, The Great Divorce. Oh, heaven to poor old Jack, eh? You murdered him. You murdered Jack and they let you in here to heaven? And I had to stay down here in this dingy place they call hell. I'm not sure I want to be in a place that doesn't give me my rights. I did murder him, but I've done far worse. But, but here in heaven, you don't get what you deserve. You get mercy. And it wasn't just the murder. It was my unkindness. It was, it was so many things. But here, you'll, you'll understand up in the mountains, just, you don't need to get what you want. That's the thing about this place. You don't get your rights. You get far more than your rights. Well, I'll tell you this, I may not be a religious man, but I've always done right by everyone. I sure have. I've always done the right thing, and I've always tried to do my best. No, you haven't, and, and neither have I. You haven't always done your best. You haven't always done right by everyone. That's why heaven is a place that you admit that you haven't done your best. And you get far more than your rights, far more than your wages. 
Let go of what you're holding on to. You don't need to reign in your own justification. Instead, come into heaven and choose to serve in heaven, a place that everyone can be accepted. I'm not going to be in a place that they let murderers in, I'll tell you that. I just want my rights. I don't want no bleeding charity. Ask for the bleeding charity. That's what makes heaven work. It's about the bleeding charity. Here we all get forgiveness. We all get mercy. But you can't have mercy if you're still holding on to your own resume. I'll tell you what, if they're going to let someone like you in, I'm going to get back on the bus. And he gets back on the bus. Why? Why does he reject heaven? Because he can't imagine not defining himself by what he does. It's his good works that are keeping him from entering heaven. Again, that's why Romans chapter 1 says that if you give yourself over to finding your identity in what you do, in your titles, in your bank account, or in the wrongdoing, you eventually have your, your heart darkened. You lose the ability to discern what's right and wrong. You lose the ability to distinguish yourself from your titles, yourself from your behaviors, yourself from your actions. Your thoughts become futile. Your heart becomes darkened. You know there's a God, but you've become your own justifier. You've become your own source. Speaking about that grumbling woman, C.S. Lewis, in the book, references a conversation between the angel and the man observing the woman. Here's what they say. The question is whether she is a grumbler or only a grumble. If there's a real woman, even the least trace of one, still there inside the grumbling, it can be brought back to life again. We can fan it into flame. We'll blow until the whole pile is red and clear. But if there's nothing but ashes, we'll not go on blowing them in our own eyes forever. They must be swept up. To which he said, how can there be a grumble without a grumbler? But don't you know lots of people that there's a grumble and no grumbler anymore? Somebody used to be a little critical and a little grumbly, and now they don't even know they grumble. They're just one long, laborious grumble. They've become the thing they focused on. And God said, all of us have done that, sometimes with envy, sometimes with pride, sometimes with gossip, sometimes with self-justification. And if you want to enter into heaven, you're basically saying, God, separate me from what I've attached myself to. And this is C.S. Lewis with lots of other funny characters giving us ways in which why would people choose to reign in hell rather than serve in heaven? So like our moralist, he doesn't want to be in heaven because he can't imagine a place that lets murder in because he's not like those people. Our second quote. Our second quote is, there are two types of people in the world, those to whom God says, thy will be done, and those to whom look to God and say, thy will be done. Those in hell choose it. So again, think of modern examples where people continue to choose to do destructive things. They say, God, I don't want your will in my life. You've told me to be forgiving. I'm choosing to be bitter. And you've tried to talk somebody out of that, right? You've heard them tell the same story about what happened to them 10 years ago or 20 years ago. And you're like, oh my goodness, this is making you miserable. And I've heard the story five times. I'm miserable. Nobody wants to hang around you. In fact, you come to the family reunion, you see that person. Okay, let's go get some drinks here. Right? Because they've become, and they know that that forgiveness is a good thing. They've heard you talk about it, but it doesn't count in their situation. They choose to reject God's will for forgiveness or joy or peace or thankfulness. And so God eventually says, your will be done. If you want to be given over to grumbleness, I will give you over to grumbleness. If you want to be given over to unkindness, I'll give you over to unkindness. You ask, you ask for it and you got it. Some people it's blaming other people. Some think it's unforgiveness. And some people it's just a desire to have more and more and more. For others of us, it's the need to be needed. 
in heaven, you don't need to be needed. Your love for who you are. And one of the characters in The Great Divorce doesn't want to go into heaven because in heaven he's no longer needed the way he was on earth. The account goes like this. There's a tragedian, a man holding a chain. The chain goes to a husband named Frank who's just come up from the bus ride to hell. His wife, who's been in heaven, is trying to plead with her husband to come into heaven with her. And the conversation goes something like this. Frank, Frank, will you come with us? Frank, will you forgive me for anything I've ever done? Will you pardon me for for the things I did wrong during our marriage on earth? Forgive me. There, there, we will let it go. We all make mistakes, dear. Let's not speak of it again. Did you miss us in heaven? It's a place of ultimate joy, but there is no sorrow. I do wish you were here. I wish you would join me in this place. She didn't answer the question. I noticed. Perhaps we should not press the issue. Do you think she'll notice that we don't press the issue? She never notices that we don't press the issue. I mean, there's lots and lots of times that we put her needs ahead of her own and she has not noticed. You remember the time there was only one stamp left in the house? And we gave it to her to write a letter to her mother and she didn't even notice? Do you remember the time we went to the movie she wanted and she didn't even thank us for doing so? Perhaps we should not press the issue here. Frank, I mean, here is a place of love. You find your identity in who you are and how God has made you. Let go of the chain. Let me talk to you, not to him. Let go of the chain to come and join me. I mean, here I'm in love. I'm truly loving for the first time. Loving for the first time? Are you saying you didn't really love me? Are you saying you didn't really love us? Well, yes, on earth we love, but, but often you love in order to be loved back. Here it's perfect love. You're, you're in love. Please, Frank, let go of the chain. You don't need to be needed. Here you can find your identity in just pure joy. Let's head back to the bus. And he rejects the chance to go into heaven. Why? Because he says, I can't imagine not meeting a victim. I can't imagine not needing to be needed. I can't imagine not being chained up or hooked up to to this bad habit, to this bad pattern I've had my whole life. And so God sadly says, for those who want to go into heaven, these are people who say, God, thy will be done in my life. I want that kind of freedom. I want that kind of joy. I want that kind of experience. But to those... They choose to get back on the bus. God says, okay, thy will be done. It's just kind of miserable, always needing to be needed. It's kind of miserable, always being a grumbler. But I'm not going to force you. Thy will be done. I was at a marriage counselor last month. Uh, some of my wife and I have done regularly for the last 23 years. And I'm reading a book for a marriage series we have coming up. And it's called How We Love. And so it talks about the patterns by which you grow up in. And one of the patterns that I grew up in is I was, I'm basically what the book calls a pleaser. 
And so I like to please. I like to have a spirit of how well can we please each other. Let's be anxious to please each other in our family. And I'm beginning to notice a dark side to that. That as much as I truly do like to please and help, sometimes like that character, I can't believe you didn't notice what I did. I can't believe you didn't notice how I compromised. I can't believe you noticed how pleasing I was. And then you start asking yourself, are you really being selfless and pleasing? Or are you using your pleasing to get your own needs met? I was talking to the counselor, and she goes, wow, that's a pretty good insight. I said, well, I don't think I've ever had a motivation that was even remotely pure. But I'm trying to be less impure or less pure in my motivations. And I'm trying to realize that I want to give without needing something in return. That's what real pleasing is. But when you hold on to your need to get your needs met through some habit that you've developed, you're going to miss out on heaven here on earth and in eternity. This is why the book of Romans says this in chapter 2, that all of us are without excuse because you may say, well, I'm not a murderer, but you're a gossip. You might say, well, I'm not a gossip, but you're a self-justifier. You may not be a self-justifier, but, but you're angry because you think you've got the right to tell people how they should act or how they should do. We're all without excuse, Romans says. You're all without excuse. You're inexcusable. For you practice the very things you judge. Now think about that. You'll say to yourself, I wish people weren't so impatient. Are you ever impatient? Well, yeah. You know, people really shouldn't gossip out of the people. Have you ever gossiped? Yeah. People shouldn't be so selfish. Have you ever been selfish? Yeah. People should be tolerant. And isn't it weird that we are intolerant toward the intolerant? We're critical toward the critical. We gossip about gossips. We criticize the critical. We practice the very things we say are wrong. Things we know are worthy of not being in God's presence. We do them. We attach ourselves to our trash. And God says, if you want to be in heaven, you basically turn to me and say, thy will be done. And I will forgive you and I will lead you into a new kind of life. And that's what heaven is. One of my favorite accounts from the book, The Great Divorce, tells the story of a man who has had this habit in his life. And this habit has so been embedded in his life that it has grown into his shoulder. And it's a serpent, a red serpent that sits on his shoulder and screams at him all the time for as long as he can remember Telling him what to do and what he cannot do. The servant sometimes will get really quiet and whisper about shame. No one could ever know you struggle with this. No one could ever know what you've done. No one would love you if they knew the kind of things you've thought or the things you've said. One day the serpent is on his shoulder screaming at him. And an angel comes up to him in heaven. He's just gotten off the bus. He's got an opportunity to choose to, to serve in heaven rather than reigning in the hell that he's lived with so long. And as the serpent is speaking to him... Shut up, let's run away from him. He turns to the serpent and says, Be quiet. The angel comes, his big, large hands, and says, Do you want to be free of that servant? Do you want to be free of that voice? For I can kill it. It is embarrassing, but... Well, look, he's fallen asleep. It's not that big a deal. I mean, sure, he can push too far, and sure, he's taken me places I didn't always want to go, but, but I didn't be, want to be a nuisance. No, no, you don't have to kill it. Do you want to be free? I can free you now. I can destroy that. But I cannot do it without your permission. If you killed it, you'd kill me. We've been connected for so long. 
If I kill it, I will not kill you. But I cannot destroy it without your permission. Do you want to be free? I've just had his voice on my shoulder for so long. It's become part of me. I, I would love to be free from him, but I can't imagine a life without him. I guess I'd rather be dead than to continue on like this. Yes. Yes, you can kill it. With that, the angel's two hands began to go aflame. And his hands got closer and closer to the serpent. And as they did, the serpent came alive. What? What? If he kills me, he'll kill you. If he kills me, he'll kill you. I'll behave. I'll behave. Please, I know. I know. I know. I've gone too far. I pushed you beyond where you wanted to go. But, but I'll calm down. I'll behave. I won't do any more. I'll be good. I'll be good. Just manage me. Don't kill me. And with that, the angel's hands came around the neck of the serpent, ripping him from his body, tossing him onto the ground with a shrill I not heard before. Ah! And the man transformed. Not that he wasn't the same man, but a man who was free and filled with joy. A man who stepped out of the bus of reigning in hell and instead serving in heaven as he turned to the angel and said, Thy will be done. And then I looked back at the serpent as it hit the ground it was transformed and it grew and it changed and it became a brilliant beautiful white stallion to which the man climbed aboard the stallion and rode it into heaven what c.s lewis is showing is that when you understand that jesus forgives you and makes you a new identity the things you are embarrassed about we all have habits on our shoulder that people don't know about and that very habit that whispered and condemned and brought you shame can be the very stallion you ride into heaven that you proudly say, you know what, I, I did have an addiction to pornography, but God worked with me through that. Instead of being filled with shame and filled with guilt, it became the very thing I can boast of. And yes, I struggle with depression. Instead of depression having a stigma, I can announce that there is a God who can work with me and be faithful to me as I walk through depression. And yes, I was addicted to my job, and I was addicted to my titles. And I'll tell you, when I said, Thy will be done, God transformed that into my life. And that is still a part of my life that God used to draw me to Him. And now it's a stallion I ride as I tell other people, don't make the same mistakes I made. So here's the question. Can you boast in your weaknesses? In 2 Corinthians, that's this idea that you can boast of the things that used to be on your shoulder. Paul says, I boast of my weaknesses. Next slide. I, my grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I will boast in my infirmities, boast in my weaknesses, that the power of God may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities when I'm sick, in reproaches, in needs, and persecutions. For when I am weak, then he is strong. So here's an analogy I've used a couple times. I think it's helpful when you think about eternity. What would be made permanent if God right now said, thy will be done in your life? If God said, I'm going to give you over to the thing you've committed your life to, would you become a title? Would you become a bank account? Would you become a gossip? Would you become self-righteous? If God right now said to you, all right, listen, thy will be done. I'm going to permanently make you into the thing you've given your life to. What would you become? Romans tells us there's some ways you can look at that. Look at your secrets. Listen to your conscience. 
Listen to your thoughts and listen to your secrets. And they will tell you what you're really giving your life to. See, for many of us, we all have some flavor of something we've given our life to. It's all different. Some are good things, some are bad things. We've given ourselves to something. Imagine if moving from earth to eternity, moving from temporal space to eternal space, what if God simply confirms your decision? What if that's what eternity is? God's saying, all right, thy will be done. You don't want my joy. You don't want my forgiveness. You don't think you need it. What if all God does is he adds a little bit of eternity to our decision? So if you choose you don't want his forgiveness, he just confirms it. Or what if, on the other hand, you say, oh, my goodness, God, I will take all the forgiveness you have. God, I will take all of the mercy you have. I don't want to be a grumble. I don't want to be a title. I don't want to be a bank account. I don't want to be a number. What if all that happens when you die is that God adds some eternity and just confirms the decisions you've made? If God confirmed your decision and said, thy will be done, what would happen in your life? What would you become? You just become permanently what you've given your life over to. And that's why at the end of your life, you either get fairness, God fairly judges you based on what you've given yourself to, or at the end of your life, you can say, I want to be known by what somebody else did right, not what I did right. I want to be known by somebody else's forgiveness. At the end of your life, God just adds eternity. And the same way, your entrance into heaven is not based on what you did, but based on he did. See, at the end of your life, there's two types of people, C.S. Lewis says. Those who say, God, I want your will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. And God confirms that. Or those to whom at the end of their life, God says, thy will be done. I wanted you to experience the kind of life I had for you. But instead, I confirmed what you decided, which was to reject me. It's a great book if you've never read it. It's a fun uh, fictional account of this, this idea of eternity. If you want to dig into more about eternity or God, I want to recommend one other book. C.S. Lewis's The Great Divorce, a very fun read. Uh, and then a second one by Tim Keller. And it's called uh, An Invitation to the Skeptic, Making Sense of God. And I hope during this series we'll encourage you to dig deeper into questions of God, eternity. And next week we'll dig into a couple more as well as we look at the problem of pain and how we deal with when bad things happen in his book, The Problem of Pain. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for these... Uh, Fun ways that C.S. Lewis made these eternal questions come to life. God, and these great characters that I see myself in so many of them. God, I just ask this, this morning that you would rescue us from ourselves, deliver us, that we would say to you, Thy will be done, rather than hearing the sad words of you saying to us, Thy will be done. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for being here today.